Let's open our Bibles together to the first chapter of the book of Romans as we continue to creep our way through the book of Romans together. We've been looking at these first verses, and this is the third of our studies together in these first verses. Romans, the first chapter. Will you pray with me before we read? Almighty God and our Father, may we never take for granted the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it required the death of your own Son to redeem and save us from our sins. Oh, how the gospel should be preached with truth, clarity, and passion, and oh, how it should be heard as your truth, as passionate hearts believe the message that is proclaimed. And so may we not be dull of hearing, but may we be well instructed from your word, and may the cumulative effect of the instruction that we receive week after week after week, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, and in other settings at other times, be the sanctification of our souls, the love of the God who has given us Christ, and the love of those around us who are in need of this same gospel. If there is anyone here this evening, even though we instruct your people, if there is anyone at all who is a stranger to grace, lost, undone, and does not know you, we pray that the Spirit of the Lord would effectually draw that one out of darkness into the marvelous light of God's own dear Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 1, we read together the first seven verses. This is the Word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now on Sunday evenings, we are looking together at this great book, the Epistle to the Romans written by Paul the Apostle, and we have noted that Romans in many ways is the key to understanding the Bible. That if you have a good grasp of the book of Romans, you really understand the development of redemptive history and the great truths and doctrines of the faith. Romans grounds us comprehensively in essential doctrine and in the assurance of faith that comes through Christ's atonement. And the preaching of this book has been at the forefront of reformation and true revival all through the history of the church. The book above all others that was preached, proclaimed, the doctrines that were proclaimed during the Protestant Reformation all came from the book of Romans as well as, of course, the whole counsel of God. Paul is also stressing the unity of Jew and Gentile and hopes that Rome will be his headquarters 
for his desire to take the gospel to those who are in Spain. So zealous was Paul for the gospel that he could not stand still. He must take that gospel to Spain. And Paul was both a man of thought and a man of action. He viewed himself as a captive to Christ, separated to gospel ministry, as we saw last time. We noted something else very important when we were last together, and it's this word gospel that is emphasized already in the salutation by Paul the Apostle. We noticed several things about that word gospel. First, there were many so-called gospels in the New Testament era. This word gospel, euangelion, was particularly associated with the emperor cult. And so when the New Testament church uses the term gospel, it says to everyone, Christ, not Caesar. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Christ, not the state. Jesus Christ is the head and king of his church. And then secondly, this word gospel also has Old Testament background Speaking of the inbreaking of God's saving rule into this world, a verse such as Isaiah 52 7. Now, as you know, it is written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek, and in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that passage, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim glad tidings, is this word, euangelion, gospel, that is used here and many places in the New Testament and in Paul. And so it is taken over by the Lord Jesus Christ in his preaching and taken over by the church. It is this idea of the gospel that brings the kingdom of God into the world. And then thirdly, as we use this term gospel, it's important for us to remember that gospel, euangelion, means news, good news. The gospel is not an idea. The gospel is not a philosophy. The gospel is not psychology. The gospel is fundamentally news about something that happened. Something that happened that must be announced, begs to be announced. We are proclaiming something that happened in time and space. We are proclaiming something that happened in history. And this wonderful thing was promised of old in the Holy Scriptures concerning God's Son. Concerning God's Son, of course, pointing to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, He is God, the second person of the Trinity. Well, what was it about God's Son? What is this news that Paul is so eager to proclaim here in Rome when he arrives, and even as far as Spain? And how important and indispensable Paul sees this to be, that it's right here in his opening words, in his salutation. What then is this gospel that he will proclaim? Well, it's found in verses 3 and 4, these verses that we have read together tonight. Let's read them again. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now immediately we face um, a question of interpretation. Now, I will confess to you, and I don't think that this will come as any surprise, that generally speaking, I am in large measure in agreement with older commentaries on the book of Romans. Does that surprise anyone? So if we turn to Charles Hodge or to, uh, or to Plummer or uh, to Haldane, 
I find myself in very large measure in agreement with older commentators and in many ways think that they're preferable to those that are new. Well, in this particular instance, I distance myself a little from what is generally the older view. The older view is that in verses 3 and 4, the emphasis is on the deity of Christ in verse 4 and on the humanity of Christ in verse 3. I think that should be nuanced somewhat and that what is considered sometimes the newer view associated, for example, with the name of Gerhardus Voss, which is a name that is known here, that great old professor at Old Princeton Seminary before it became liberal, that verses 3 and 4 actually refer to the humiliation and to the exaltation of Christ. Now, it's absolutely true that Jesus is both God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. That's absolutely the case. The question is, what is Paul getting at in these verses 3 and 4? And I think that it will become plain as we move along that he's stressing the state of Christ's humiliation and the state of Christ's exaltation in these verses. So let's unpack the verses together. First, you will notice that he says that Jesus, the Son of God, was born of the seed of David. You see that there in verse 3. He was promised of old by the prophets time and again, and in order to be the Messiah, he must be descended from David. This is stressed not only by Paul here, but stressed in various places in the Bible and in the New Testament. We just finished our very lengthy series in the book of Matthew. Do you remember all the way in the first chapter that genealogy that stresses that he is born of the seed of David? Or you might turn to Luke's gospel, and there in chapter 1, in verses 27, 32, 33, and 69, there is this stress upon the fact that he is of David's line. Paul then is indicating that Christ in his coming fulfills the promise of the prophets. For example, for example Micah 5, 2, But thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto thee, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. In order to be the Messiah, he must be born of the seed of David. But notice that he goes on to say, born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And this helps us to see what Paul is really driving for. He's stressing the state of humiliation that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, condescended to come into this world and to assume human nature. The incarnation of our Lord is what is stressed when he speaks of his being according to the flesh. Recently, some Jehovah's Witnesses were at my door, and we had interesting conversation about the gospel, and I pressed upon them the deity of Christ, how it was necessary that if we are to be saved from our sin, that Jesus Christ come into this world and assume human nature, that his infinite nature gave to his finite nature, deity, humanity, that his infinite nature gave to his finite nature, infinite value when he shed his blood upon a cross and pressed upon these these lost people their need of Jesus Christ who is God who became man in the incarnation. When I was done with something of my presentation of the gospel to these fellows, which I think took them aback, they said to me, 
you know, we don't believe in reincarnation. I said, where did that come from? Well, you just said it. I said, oh, you mean incarnation, the incarnation of our Lord. Now, let me explain to you, I said, incarnation means to take upon yourself flesh. Incarnation means to assume human nature. Does your mom ever fix chili con carne? It's chili with meat, right? Incarnation means that the Son of God assumed human nature. So how very important it is that we understand some of these basic, just historical, theological language as we understand the gospel of Christ. He assumed human nature. The Apostle Paul is saying here the same thing that John does when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14 of John 1, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God the Son assumed human nature. So verse 3 stresses that the eternal Son's coming into the world means that He actually came according to the flesh, that is, He assumed human nature. Now we come to verse 4, which says, "...and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead." Actually, the term was declared to be the Son of God. The term declared usually, almost everywhere, means to determine or to appoint or to ordain. Now, of course, Jesus is essentially the Son of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. He is God Himself. And so it would be a very odd thing to see that Paul would be saying determined or appoint or ordained him to be the Son of God, but that's not what Paul says, if you read carefully. Paul does not say that Jesus was appointed Son of God or even declared Son of God, but appointed Son of God with power. You see, what he's doing is contrasting the humiliation when he assumed human nature with the exaltation which begins in his resurrection from the dead. Paul is talking about the one formerly humiliated who now has been raised from the dead. And as mediator, the Son of God, who was born of a virgin, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, is now seen as the Son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead. So I have no objection to the term declare, but really, he is saying something else. He's saying something, something more significant. Not only that the resurrection declares, but that the resurrection of Jesus helps us to see and to understand this transition from humiliation to exaltation. It's a glorious thing. And this, he says, was according to the spirit of holiness, not meaning his human nature, but the Holy Spirit, as he uses a similar term in Romans eight eleven. How then was he appointed or declared to be Son of God? By his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ is not in a grave. His bones are not bleaching under a Syrian sky. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is the fundamental doctrine that we find in these opening verses of the book of Romans. So when Paul defines for us the very core of the gospel... Paul stresses the pre-resurrection, 
post-resurrection state of our Lord Jesus Christ. Humiliation, resurrection. Humiliation, exaltation. And Paul adds in verse 5, very significantly, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for His name among all the nations. Jesus Christ, he says, is Lord, Lord, owner, ruler, master, the one now exalted to God's right hand who exercises as our glorified mediator the rule of all authority and power. And from this exalted Lord, Paul receives grace to be an apostle. From this exalted Lord, he calls for a response of faith. And on this expression, the obedience of faith, found in verse 5, John Murray says, The faith which the apostleship was intended to promote was not an evanescent act of emotion, but commitment of wholehearted devotion to Christ and to the truth of His gospel. And to this all nations are called. Here's a missions text, if ever there has been one. For His name's sake, this gospel is preached to all the nations, says Paul. Now Paul, and this is no exaggeration, sees this to be the most significant thing in the world. That the Son of God would be humiliated for sinners. That He would be exalted for sinners. After all, it's here in the salutation, the first verses, And it is unpacked in the remainder of the book of Romans. He sees this to be, this gospel should be preached, should be proclaimed, and it should be heard, and it should be believed by those to whom it comes. So let us now dwell for a few minutes on the significance of verses 3 and 4, may we? We've seen that Paul is focused on the pre-post state of Jesus, this pre-post state humiliation incarnation, and then his powerful resurrection from the dead, and that Paul sees this as of fundamental, indispensable importance because it all speaks of the lordship of Jesus Christ, the Pantocrator, the ruler of all things and the head and king of the church. Now let's think about its importance, and we can see just a little about that tonight. First of all, the Apostle Paul, as we have seen in verse 3, dwells upon the incarnation of our Lord. Humiliation of the Son of God, assuming human nature. Why is that important? Why is that essential for us? Well, it's really very simple. The Son of God can only save human nature if He assumes human nature. That was the great debate all the way back in the Arian controversy. Athanasius said something along these lines, almost the very words that I've spoken tonight. He can only save human nature if he assumes human nature. Only then could he obey the law in our place that we broke. Only then could he go to the cross and as our substitute take the wrath of God upon himself as our propitiatory sacrifice that rightly belong to me. Only then could he be, as we find in Romans 5, the last Adam who would save us. Now Christmas is a very important time for Covenant Presbyterian Church. It's a wonderful time, it's a beautiful time, 
We have our lessons and carols, we sing our great Christmas hymns, and really it's right around the corner. I'm glad that it's such a special time in this congregation. But what more mysterious than the Incarnation? And what more wondrous than the Incarnation? And it is my goal every Christmas season, if the Holy Spirit chooses to bless, to do my very best to help us be lost in a sense of wonder at what has happened that the Son of God would assume human nature. Do you remember that great quote from Augustine? Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breasts, that bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. That's what Paul is getting at when he says to us concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh, the humiliation of the incarnation. But then there's the significance of the resurrection. The resurrection is determinative in Paul's thinking. He was met by the risen Christ on the Damascus road. He actually saw the risen Christ. The resurrection is determinative for Paul because it demonstrates Christ's victory in his cross. That when Christ said, it is finished, that it really was finished. Nothing more was to be added. The sufficient and complete and finished work of Christ is declared by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It is determinative because the resurrection is essential to true faith in Christ. As we are told by Paul in chapter 10, that we confess the resurrection of Jesus in order to be saved. The resurrection determines our Christian living. So we are told in chapter 6 of the book of Romans that we are in union with Him who died and who rose again. And we walk in newness of resurrection life. The resurrection is determinative of our future, emphasized in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans. But I think summarized so beautifully in that one verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, don't you? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who sleep. Whereby Paul the Apostle, comparing the resurrection of Jesus to the Old Testament harvest, calls him firstfruits. Do you remember what the firstfruits was all about? It was the first part of the entirely anticipated crop. And so when Jesus is called the first fruits of those who sleep, it means not only that our resurrection is certain, that's true, but it means that the first part of the entirely anticipated resurrection crop has already begun, so that in principle, your resurrection has taken place in Christ. That's why it's certain that your body will be raised from the dead. And we could go on and on with how the Apostle Paul sees this to be fundamental and indispensable. And yet I wonder, how, how often do you think about the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? Is it fundamental to you? Does it grip your thinking and your living? Are you motivated when you get up in the morning and go to bed at night 
I serve a risen Savior. Listen, if you're changing diapers, you should be motivated by the resurrection. If you're going to work in the morning, if you're doing a job, you should be motivated by the resurrection. If you're a student, you young people in school, you should be motivated by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because it demonstrates Christ's victory in the cross, is essential to your faith in Christ, demonstrates your Christian living and determines it and determines your future, which is yea and amen in Christ. Now, I believe when Paul got up in the morning, his thoughts were on the resurrected Christ. I believe that when Paul put his head upon his pillow at night, his sleep was determined by the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Jesus changed his life. The resurrection of Jesus determined his life. The resurrection of Jesus defined his ministry and gave him courage even in the face of stoning and beating and shipwreck and death. Christ was raised from the dead and Paul rose up for mission. Christ was raised from the dead and you should rise up tomorrow to live for him in the circumstances that he has ordained for you. And of course, for Paul, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the basis of the proclamation of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul proclaims the lordship of Christ through atonement and resurrection. Through atonement, you are not your own, you are bought with a price. Through resurrection, because he is declared to be son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead. The risen Christ is Lord of the universe and he is Lord of our lives, and to reflect those old words of James Denny. Christ is such a person that the entire universe revolves around him. Christ is such a person that your personal universe should revolve around him. So do we understand this? Do we grasp this? That we have no right in any area of life to act as if we were autonomous lords because Jesus died for me, because Jesus rose from the dead, because he purchased me as my substitute on the cross, because he rose from the dead and I am in union with him, then he owns all of me and not some of me. But I want to bring a final encouragement as we have this brief study from Romans tonight. A final encouragement for you. And it's this emphasis on the fact that this gospel is a word of promise. You notice in verse 2, he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I've already unpacked that last time. But the point is this, there's an emphasis on the promise. The gospel is a gospel of promise. Acts 13, 32, And we declare unto you glad tidings, that which God promised to the fathers, which he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. How often the word promise is used in relation to the gospel, the promised Holy Spirit, the promise of everlasting life, the promise of his coming, and so forth that we find in the New Testament. Promise and gospel so often paired together. Well, do you not see the encouragement, my friends? This gospel that we believe is not some vague maybe. It is the promise of the God who cannot lie, that He will save His people from their sins. 
And even the way, the way it comes to us, is by means of promise. What could I do? Dead in trespasses and sins, incapable of faith or repentance, I could not bring myself into a savable state. What could I do? But this gospel was a gospel of promise. We cannot believe it on our own. We cannot embrace it on our own. But God promises, I have a people, and I will save that people from their sins. Thank God. Now, let's expand the encouragement. Take this word promise, and then relate it to something else we see in these verses. I wonder if you've noticed. It's this emphasis on the Trinity. You say, where is that? Well, let's look at it. Let's just start again reading at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, that's the Father, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. We know that God in verse 1 is the Father because we are told in verse 3 that it's a gospel concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God. There's the second person of the Trinity again in power according to the spirit of holiness. That's the Holy Spirit. And so here we are reading the salutation to the book of Romans, and within the first four verses, the Apostle Paul packs so much doctrine into it that already we find the Trinity. That there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power, and in glory. The Trinity is absolutely essential to biblical Christianity. The Trinity is the differentiating doctrine of the Christian faith. Now, put that with promise, will you? The promise of the gospel is a promise that comes to us, his people, from the triune God. Here is the Father in eternity past who chooses his own according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, says Ephesians 1.4. Here is the Son who willingly, who willingly says to the Father, I will go and I will die for my people. I will shed my blood for them. Here is the blessed work of the Holy Spirit who applies the work of the gospel to the hearts of God's people. Promise. The Father has promised. The Son has promised. The Holy Spirit has promised. The Father promised when He chose you that He would save you. The Son promised that He would come and die for you. The Spirit promises His people that you will be called and you will be kept for time and for eternity. No wonder Paul could endure and seven times that we know of wear chains. And so can you go on in faith. Go on, go on with all of the struggles of life. Go on with all of the opposition to Christ and His gospel. Go on, go on, go on and be faithful because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons, has promised to bring you all the way to your heavenly home. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.